0: question John is posing to us today he posed it to Nicodemus he's posing it to us and in the repetition of this question believe or not believe there's significance we've come to the end of the words of Christ to Nicodemus on that fateful night when Nicodemus came looking in simple humility to a rabbi a teacher that he knew was greater than him He didn't yet know that He was the Son of God. He didn't know that He had the answers to eternal life. But He just saw the signs and He knew that He had to have come from God. If we look back in chapter 3, we've been here some time, and I'm just wanting to kind of put us in the frame of mind of this whole flow of the text here. We find Jesus first approaching Nicodemus, After being addressed as the rabbi, we know that you are from God because no man can do these signs lest he be from God. And then Jesus in verse 3 of chapter 3 jumps right into the meat, the heart of the question. I told the young children in catechism this morning, there is an order to this text. It is an important order. You don't need to disregard it. Change of heart, belief, eternal life. Jesus does not say in verse 3, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And everything from that point is a description of what born again is and then what born again brings to us. But born again is his subject. Don't miss that. There is an order and there is a reason to the order. Jesus says you must be born again before He says you must believe. And as I told the children this morning, that's because, as as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, as a natural man, you cannot perceive the things of the Spirit. You don't understand them. Unless He births you, unless you are born in His Spirit, you cannot know these things. They're not common to man. They're not even intelligent to the mind of the world. But in verse 3, he says clearly, if you want to be, see the kingdom, you've got to be born. And then there's this exchange between Nicodemus who is shocked that Jesus would tell him to be born again and the question, how can these things be? What, what do you mean I've got to be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb be born a second time? Remember that the focus of rebirth is not the work that a man is able to do but rather the work that only God can do. By this point in the conversation, Nicodemus is confused and his response shows that. He says in the text, how can these things be? To the answer, Jesus starts in verse 9 lecturing him on being the teacher of the Jews and yet you don't even know what the Old Testament plainly teaches. Jesus says, if I'm talking to you about earthly things, how will you ever understand when I begin to speak to you about heavenly things? Isn't there earthly? Because in Ezekiel, we find this new birth, don't we? We talked about that. In Ezekiel 36, we find God leading the prophet out above the valley and He's looking at the dry bones and He says, prophesy, son of man, prophesy, speak to these bones and tell them to live. It sounds just as insane Ezekiel, it must have, as it did to Nicodemus when Jesus says, be born again. But then Nicodemus is faced with the same perplexing situation that Ezekiel was facing. And Ezekiel responded in faith. Ezekiel preached to dry bones. And I've heard many a sermon about a joke, you know, the pastor always jokes, I feel like Ezekiel, you know, I'm talking a bunch of dry bones. No, you don't. All you people are alive. You've all, you've all got flesh. You've all, you all at least pay me the courtesy to think that I think you're listening. You may not be. That's okay. But I at least think you are. But imagine Ezekiel and the faith that it took for him to look out over dry bones, no marrow, no hope. These are skeletons scattered. Nothing was connected. And yet, he preached to them. That's the kind of faith that we're going to examine today is the faith that only God can give to look at any situation, especially that dealing with salvation and who we have faith in, and to believe it, and to preach it, and to speak it, and to live it. And so God, Jesus, says, like God told Ezekiel to Nicodemus, you've got to have faith. That's what He's telling them. And in verse 15, He says, kind of bringing that paragraph to an end, remember. Just as the children in the wilderness look to the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that all who look to Him, whoever looks to Him might be saved, will be saved is the right way to look at that. And we went through a long talk about that there's no work involved in that. That was was the hand of God... his provision was, Moses, make a bronze serpent, raise it up. Don't tell them to walk to it. Don't let, tell them to answer to it. Don't tell them to pray to it. Don't tell them to do anything. Open their eyes and see the serpent and be healed. That was it. And we even talked about the deceptiveness of the human heart and how that, how that even though God went to great lengths to make sure they couldn't take credit, or couldn't take works, into, or couldn't give praise to the serpent. What did they do? We found it in Kings. What did they do? They took that serpent and made an altar out of it, made an idol out of it, and began to worship it instead of God. And so God had to destroy that serpent, take it away from them completely. Because all of us have those things in our lives, don't we? All of us have those moments where we like to say, God did all of this up till here, and then I took over. And they're they're points of pride. They're points of an idol for us. We're worshiping ourselves or worshiping some pastor. The the worst thing, the worst compliment you could pay me would be to say that I invoked your salvation in that sense. If God used me as a mouthpiece for himself to bring you to himself, so be it. But I don't want any glory. And you should want no glory for your own salvation or the salvation of others. Only God can save a soul. Only God can rebirth a soul. Only God can cause a man to look in faith and be healed. Jesus sums up His discussion with the Pharisee by teaching the eternal love of God. We have spent four weeks dissecting the most familiar verse in the Bible. Remember, it was of this verse that... uh, that D.L. Moody returned to his church after the young man had preached all week on the same text. Remember, it's this verse that after thinking in his mind, after having the question put to him that Barth said, the greatest truth ever that I discovered in life. And what was it? Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. The greatest truth he had ever encountered in all of life, all of his studies, all of his theology... It came down to the fact that Jesus loved him. I want you to recall that the emphasis of verse 16 is God and his act of redemption, not man and his response to Jesus Christ. For God, remember, so love the world. The emphasis is on God. God is the creator and the redeemer. His love is great, infinite, giving, and unchanging. Not only is God great, infinite, giving, and unchanging, but God's love is active. It's active because He sent His only Son, His one and only Son. It's common in the fact that all mankind benefits in some way. That's known as common grace. And it is particular in the sense that only those who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus has laid out a very clear argument in this passage. Nicodemus, this is a summation. Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. This is something that you cannot do because you are not God. But believe me, when God gives you new life, you will look to me in faith. The reason that God performs this great act of creating new life is because it brings him great glory. Nicodemus, you need to remember that there is only one way that God saves people from hell, and that is through believing in his only Son. That's the summation of Jesus' statement. That's what he said in these previous verses. The argument has been made. The invitation has got to be made clear. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to make his invitation now to Nicodemus. Today we want to look at this question. To believe or not to believe. God requires you to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, we find the word there in the text, Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Faith is a concept that is terribly misunderstood in our world. When a person hears the word faith today, they are drawn to thoughts that seem wishful. Many people speak of faith as if it's a leap of faith, or blind faith, as if this is what God calls us to have in Christ. The nature of faith is described differently in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Look at what it says. I have put it on the screen. Now, faith is the assurance. It doesn't sound wishful, does it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction. It doesn't sound like it's blind. You can't have a conviction about something you know nothing about. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap. Faith is not uncertainty faith is assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and so we have the biblical definition of faith when a person looks up the definition of hope that's used in scripture as it's given to us in biblical definition it, this is what he'll find anticipation hope is anticipation of the future as the fulfillment of god's purposes based on god's covenant faithfulness That's important. When you hope, you're not wishing. It's certain. Why is it certain? Why can we have assurance? Because God has been acting in covenant with man from the beginning. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Covenant of life, covenant of grace. Okay? He's been working in covenant in agreement with man since the beginning. And He's been faithful to His side of the covenant. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy. When we're faithless, He's faithful. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ as known by the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. So when we talk about hope, it's not a wish. Hope is not a probability. Hope is anticipation of God's fulfilled plan of redemption. That's what we're hoping for. That's what hope means. So faith is the assurance of things anticipated in the future. You might not see them yet, but you anticipate they're going to happen based on God's faithfulness to the covenant. God has never failed. He has shown Himself to be truthful. And so we have great anticipation. Faith can be defined as trust or belief <clears throat> or obedience to God as revealed in Jesus Christ. It, mean, it is the means of salvation or eternal life. Faith affects all aspects of the human existence. Intellect, emotions, and will. Faith is not a leap because it doesn't stop at emotions. It would be a leap if you stopped there and then you just said, well, I just got to fall into it. It's just got to be blind. I guess I just can't have any facts. I just got to kind of believe. No. We have facts. We have a faithful God, and we can have sure, sure, assurance of the future based on His faithfulness. And so we're certain. Faith is a certainty in the Bible. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. It's not a probability. So we f- see that faith is trusting in the future that is not seen, but that is reality because of the one and only Son of God, Jesus Faith is from the Greek word pistis, but John refers to uh, the u- re- prefers to use the verb form pistuo. Rarely will you see John, if ever, never in the Gospel does he use the noun form faith. He always uses the verb form believe. You see it over and over again, ninety-eight times in the Gospel of John, he will say believe, trust, or some form of that verb, and that's in comparison. To just over 20 times in Romans, which you would kind of think the opposite's true. But no, John is the one who focuses on belief. John is the one who focuses on you believing in Jesus Christ. This is by far the greatest number of usages in the Bible of this word. I believe that this is one of the crucial terms to understanding the entire book of John. So we're going to spend some time on it this morning. What is faith? What is faith? If it's not hopeful and it's not wishful and it's not just a probability, what is it? As a young boy, I can remember, remember I grew up on a farm. I can remember from probably early on, four or five years old, going with my grandfather every spring in the big truck, the 18-wheeler. That was cool back then, you know. Strapped there in the front seat, we'd ride down to the local co-op. It was also our gin. My granddad would back that thing up to the dock. I'd get out and get a RC cola and sit down. And he would, with the help of maybe one other, two other men that was standing around the shop, load our seed, load our chemicals, load everything up. He never talked to anybody. He loaded it on our truck. He pulled our truck away from the dock. We went inside where we usually ate lunch, because by then it was lunchtime, with the owner of the shop. They never talked about price. He never asked my granddad any questions. My granddad simply laid a list on the desk that said, I've got these things, and they shook hands, walked off. Thousands of dollars worth of seed and chemicals and all the things we would need And this was the statement. Every time we walked out the door, this was the statement. He would turn back and say to the guy, see you in the fall. All year we worked on faith. And that co-op man worked on faith. Faith that we would pay our bill. But I want you to understand something. You couldn't have that. He would not have that kind of faith in you. And he did not have that kind of faith in a five-year-old. That I was gonna pay my bill what was the faith based off of 25 years of my granddad paying him every dime he owed and after 25 years a man earns the right in the farming business anyway to go get his stuff and pay at the end of the year the bank operates that same way with my granddad we have a local little bank my mother-in-law is not here. She was my granddad's uh, secretary and loan officer for years at the bank. Those people loan him hundreds of thousands of dollars without a question. He don't have to put up any collateral. He don't have to do nothing. He just signed on the dotted line. Why? Because every year it's paid off. Do you see what I'm saying? They're banking. They have faith in him. Why? Because he's been faithful to pay to do what he says he's going to do, and it is sure. They're not wishful that he's going to come back in with some money. They are sure he's coming back in with money. You can't do that much in this life anymore, can you? How about we load up after church, go to the local restaurant, tell them it's on faith? (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) Not even for $5. Matter of fact, let's load up and go to the local bank's nowadays and see if they'll just even if we've been operating with them for a long time they may give us a good deal but they're going to want some surety they have to why because people aren't faithful we know that about humans and that fact that humans aren't faithful skews our perspective about god many of you don't fully trust god you're not reclining and relaxing in christ alone because you keep waiting for the other shoe to fall. You hear Jesus saying all these things, but you don't yet know if He will come through. Your dad has failed you. Your mom has failed you. Your wife or husband has failed you. All of your friends have failed you. Everything in life has fallen away. You had money. You lost money. You gave it again and lost it again. And you say, nothing is sure in this world. I've got to have smarts and reason and i got to think this thing through, and you're waiting on the other shoe to fall. And I want to give you this today. Based on the authority of God's Word, the other shoe will never fall, because our God is faithful. And you, therefore, can have faith in Him. You can believe in Him. You can trust Him. If He promises it, He will deliver. And so, far from being like my granddad, who possibly, as I think about that as a grown man, I think, man, that guy really was sleeping. Because what if something happened to my granddad? You know, he could be in big time loss over that loan. But this is cynical world we live in calls our faith pie in the sky. They call it, they call for proof in the pudding. You know, prove yourself. Many of you are doing the same thing with God. You keep saying to Him, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it to me, God. Keep proving it. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, the only ones that will be saved are those who have faith in me alone. That's it. There's There's nothing else. There's no surety else, other surety needed. Jesus is faithful. Faith is the title and deed to the property. If we go out to... Uh, go back to my house get in my, my file cabinet and we pull out the title and deed to my car and I give it to you who really owns my car at that point if, you, if the bank's holding your title and deed who owns that car the bank owns the car not you Miss a few payments and see who owns your car. That piece of metal means nothing. That piece of paper means everything. What is faith? Faith is the title and deed to your eternal inheritance in heaven. It's the conviction of things you can't see. God is saying, faith in me. Faith in my only son is a deed. To eternal life. You can't see it yet. You're not there yet. But it's as sure. As finished. It's done. It's the title indeed. God. Is calling us. To have faith. He wants to give us. The title indeed. To the internal. Inheritance we have. In Christ. What is God calling us. To have faith in. The fact. Is that God calls us. To believe everything. He's written in the word of God. But I want to bring it down to two things in the area of salvation. God is calling you to believe that you are less than perfect. And that because He is perfect, we deserve to be separated from Him forever. We've all heard the analogy of Romans 3.23 played out, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His... No, excuse me. That's the wrong verse. Romans 3.23. I'm in the wrong, wrong thing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm sure you've heard the analogy of the target and the man shooting the arrow and he misses the target. And so is he perfect? No, he's not perfect. He missed. And we've all done that. But it's not even, what we're going to see next week, it's not even that we're shooting at the target. We're shooting the opposite direction of the target. We ain't even coming in the same ballpark as the target. We don't even have a desire to hit the target before we're saved. All of your life, if you're lost this morning, you've been shooting the opposite direction of Christ. You've been aiming at something other than Him. You haven't been trying to be like Jesus. You haven't been trying to be like Jesus. You might have been trying to be a good person, but you're not trying to be like Christ. You're firing the arrow the other direction. And so God is saying you're less than perfect. You are fallen. You are totally depraved. You have nothing good in you. And people, you know, recoil from this because they think they've got God in a box, right? Aha. I'm not as bad as I could be because I'm not Adolf Hitler. How many times have you heard that? If we were really totally depraved, if everybody was totally depraved, we'd all be like Hitler. Well... In one sense, we are like Hitler, and in another, we're not. In the sense that we're like him is is we're just as repulsive to God as he was. In your natural state, in God's eyes, you are no better than Hitler. Some of us have even slain as many people as Hitler did. We just haven't done it physically. We've done it mentally, as Aaron talked about, if we hate our brothers, if we think adultery, If we do these things, we've done it mentally. And to God, we're no different in that stance. We are that bad. But really, depravity is not telling you you've got to be as bad as Hitler before you're totally depraved. What it's telling you is you have no ability. Just like Hitler had no ability to save himself, you have no ability to save yourself. Nothing in you will respond to God unless God makes you reborn. And so, God is calling you to believe that fact. Second. You, I, the little children last week heard me say, and I, they even kind of sat back. The reason that fact's important is you can't be saved until you know that. You can't be saved from sin until you know you're a sinner. You'll never ask Jesus to save you until you know you're depraved. And I know that's totally opposite of everything else you hear today because the world wants you to believe and the enemy wants you to believe and the flesh wants you to believe that all you need to be saved is to want to be a little bit better. We went and saw a movie, I'm not going to spoil it, this weekend. It charged your batteries, it makes you feel good. But what the world wants you to believe is that if you believe in Jesus, your life will go from being an eight to being a ten. That's not what God has said in His Word. What God has said is, you're so far the opposite direction of ten, and you have no hope of coming back even to zero. You're morally corrupt in your very being in every part. And I told the little ones, you can't be saved until you know that, because you won't repent until you know that. It's impossible to turn away from something you don't even know exists in your life. That's why God requires that first for faith. Second, He calls you to have faith in this, that He loves you in spite of your sin. And He has acted in Jesus Christ to remove that sin and to begin to make us, you, perfect into the image of Christ. You've got to believe you're depraved and believe that He's done something about it in Christ. And that if you come to Him, He's making you into Christ's image. Faith starts out, and I believe it did for Nicodemus. started out very, very weak. And I know that that bothers some of you. Faith, um, it seems so small in our lives. Maybe it seems so small in your life. But I want to encourage you as we end. Faith grows. The Christian life is characterized by a faith that grows. If your faith is not growing, you need to ask tough questions about your faith. Is it in Christ? Because if it's in Christ, it grows. You may this very moment have very weak faith, but I want you to know that as you leave, I want you to have the hope that you're going to continue to mature. Third John says, My greatest joy is that my little children are growing in the faith. That's the greatest joy. You may be just now become a Christian in the last month, and you may say, Man, I don't have faith hardly at all. But it will grow. As your relationship with God grows, so your faith in Him will grow because He is faithful. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's given to us in an example form in Hebrews 11 about our father Abraham. The beginning of faith for Abraham was very weak. In Genesis 11, we see the picture of him leaving the Mesopotamia and going to Haran in Syria and stopping. And he stayed there until his dad died. <clears throat> when his dad died, he was 75 years old, and God had to call him again in chapter 12. He had to say, Abraham, Abram, go to the promised land that I will show you. His faith at the beginning didn't take a whole lot because he was leaving, though it was tough, he was leaving his inheritance and going to a land that God was going to give him. That was tough, but it wasn't as tough as things were going to get in the future. Notice God didn't start off by saying, Here, take your boy and kill him. God started off with small stuff. Give up all your worldly possessions and I'll give you some more. (laughs) That's a little faith. But his faith grew. It began to mature. We see that in... That that first statement was in Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham left Mesopotamia and moved on, right? Headed towards Palestine. He got stuck in Haran. But then his faith began to grow. In Hebrews eleven nine, we see that his faith is growing as he begins to believe that God is going to deliver him from danger. He does that. As he's going to deliver his family, Lot, from danger, his faith grows. As he sees his son will be born, the one that was promised to him so many years ago, will be born, and he, his faith even grows from that. And so in the struggle of life, God's faithfulness proves itself and then our faith continues to grow. And some of you know exactly what I'm saying. And some of you don't yet know that, but you will. And finally, it came to maturity. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17-19 shows the picture of Him offering His son, Isaac, on the altar. And this was His statement, remember? Having faith that even if He did offer him, God would raise him from the dead. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us how mature Abraham's faith was. How mature was it? He did receive his son as from the dead. That's how great God is. He gives faith and then He incrementally grows faith. He'll never give us more than we can take. As He grows us in this life And then in the end, we will be the mirrors that He intends us to be. We will reflect the glory of Christ. We will look like His Son. To believe or not to believe, that is the question you must answer today. The promise of eternal life is only offered to those who believe in Jesus Christ. I know that this talk of believing is difficult in our age of reason and science and materialism, but if you have the desire to trust in Him For salvation, Jesus stands ready to save everyone who believes in Him. Maybe you're here today and your faith is still very minimal, very immature. I know this is difficult. If you're in faith today, God will cause that faith to mature during your Christian life. If your faith is not maturing, then as I said earlier, you need to examine your faith. You need to know whether you're trusting in Him, whether the foundation of your faith is Christ and Christ alone. As you live your daily life, live it with this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus rewarded the poor man who came to Him with that faith. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. God's faithful to mature all of His children to the image of His Son. I was asked that in college by a guy that became a Christian there. And he said, do you believe every Christian grows to maturity? Absolutely. Every Christian bears fruit. Every Christian's faith grows. Without a doubt. Because our God is faithful to finish what He begins in you. Out of the deep I call to Thee, O Lord, to Thee. Before Thy throne of grace I fall. Be merciful to me. Out of the deep I cry, the woeful deep of sin, of evil done in days gone by, of evil now within. Out of the deep of fear and dread of coming shame, All night till morning watches near. I plead the precious name. Lord, there is mercy now as ever was with Thee. Before Thy throne of grace, I bow. Be merciful to me. Father, this is the response, I believe, to this text. Be merciful to us, O God.